Well, before we get to the message, just a quick uh, word, one more word about Christmas Eve. Uh, we cannot wait to welcome you. And as Savannah mentioned at the beginning of our gathering, we'll have uh, services at 12, 2, uh, 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and 8 o'clock. Um, there will be a 4 o'clock gathering here in Elliott Hall, uh, led by our amazing worship team. Um, and we're excited to do that for the first time in this new space on Christmas Eve. Uh, just a head up, heads up, there is no 10 p.m. service, so um, please don't show up at, for that one or it'll be a real silent night. And um, <laughs> Now, for a lot of us, uh, we can remember a time when for whatever reason, uh, we were the ones who kind of felt like we were on the outside looking in at the church. And whether that was our own questions and doubts, or uh, maybe you were just busy, distracted by other things, maybe you didn't feel welcome. Uh, you felt kind of judged by the church. But along the way, there was someone in your life who invited you in. And see, Christmas is a, is a time when people seem to be more open to that sort of invitation. There's something about this story that, 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 that draws outsiders in. One of the driving themes of the Christmas story is that outsiders become insiders. And so I want to ask you just to be thinking about and even to pray about someone in your life that you could invite to draw near to Jesus this Christmas so that Jesus could draw near to them. All right, um, today what I want to talk about is what happens when life doesn't go according to the script. Most of us, whether we think about it that way or not, I mean, we have a script for how we want life to turn out. Uh, now, it doesn't always follow the script, but most of us have some kind of a script. Even when it comes to the holiday season, we make plans. We have a script. We want things to turn out and play out a certain kind of way. Uh, some of the greatest Christmas movies of all time are based on this idea of life going off script. Um, it's a Wonderful Life, Home Alone, Die Hard, right? These are all great Christmas classics about you know, Christmas going off script. And so this morning, we're going to look back at the, the first Christmas and... Uh, we're going to look at this Christmas through the eyes of uh, a man for whom uh, suddenly his life went way off script. He's a strangely overlooked figure in the Christmas story, this guy named Joseph. It's interesting, when you look at the history of the church uh, and things like art and culture, Joseph is not really the most popular figure. Even into our day, uh, later this afternoon, if there's like a quarterback who tries to throw a desperation pass at the very end of a football game, we didn't name that after Joseph, right? I mean, his wife, Mary, got that one. In early Christian art, Joseph is often uh, painted or depicted as sleeping through the birth of Jesus. Now, I have a story related to that that I don't have time to tell today, but if you ever want to ask Allie, you can, you can ask her for yourself. One writer even said that among Catholic priests today, if someone says he's going to take a St. Joseph's meditation, it means he's going to take a nap, which no service has found that funny yet. And I, but I, for some reason, I still keep telling that one. And eventually, that's all I got. I mean, that's it. Um, so there's this image of Joseph as kind of, kind of an inept, passive husband. He's there. He's a part of the story, but he's totally overshadowed by his heroic wife. Right, sort of a biblical Homer Simpson. It's like we have this you know, idea in our minds that Joseph didn't even think to call ahead to book a room for you know, his pregnant wife in Bethlehem. I mean, like what kind of a deadbeat husband forgets that little detail? And yet, try to find a city 
without a hospital or a school that bears his name. So what's the deal with St. Joseph? Well, let's start with what we do know about him. Three things. What do we know about Joseph first? Joseph was part of the royal family. Matthew's gospel, if uh, the opening words of the New Testament, actually begins with a genealogy, a list of so-and-so begat so-and-so, which I know for a lot of us is the definition of boring. But for ancient readers, this was the good stuff. And what we find in this genealogy is that the royal line of King David, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, the royal line is alive and well in Joseph. The only problem is Joseph doesn't look like a king. Because secondly, we're told Joseph was a carpenter. It's the Greek word tekton. Uh, it can mean a number of things, stonemason, woodworker, contractor, whatever its exact meaning, it's clear that Joseph was not a wealthy man. He was a laborer, which means, among other things, he didn't have margin or time uh, to study like the rabbis. This is from the ancient book of Sirach. Every carpenter, every tekton, labors by night just as by day. If you think about it, um, this is partly why the crowds were so amazed by Jesus. Later in his life, as, he, as Jesus begins his teaching ministry, he who was trained to be a carpenter like his dad, and people were just blown away because he's a carpenter, and yet he's got all this wisdom and this depth of knowledge and this insight that people don't normally associate with a laborer. So the last place you'd go looking for a royal heir is among the day laborers and tradesmen in a small town like Nazareth. But here's like the other part to this. Who's the other royal king in the backdrop of the Christmas story? It's a guy named Herod. And King Herod, if you know his story, he was a ruthless, paranoid king. Had his own wife and uh, sons killed for fear that they might betray him. Later on, he orders the massacre of, of children across Bethlehem, having heard this rumor of a so-called king of the Jews being born. And so it's actually Joseph's obscurity that ends up shielding his family from Herod. And I love this quote from the church father Origen. Uh, he was fascinated with Joseph, and he basically says, it was Joseph who kept the mystery hidden. And not just from King Herod, but from the devil himself. And this is rather lengthy. It's a paraphrase, but I think it's just golden. Origen says, the miracle, that's Jesus, is received into the intimacy of marriage and family, hidden there, welcomed there, not only by the grace of Mary, but by the righteous Saint Joseph, whose protection and providing for a son who is not naturally his own, weaves a cloak of invisibility. Isn't that a striking phrase? a cloak of invisibility of paternal love around this whole family, an exhibition of foolishness that the devil cannot see through because he who does not believe in love expects any divine power worth its salt to be exhibited in daunting and dazzling display. The last place you'd go looking for a king was in the home of a carpenter. That's not dazzling. That's not impressive. That's, that's obscure. That's humble. So what do we know about Joseph? He was royal, he was a carpenter, and then third, he was quiet, real quiet. In fact, in the New Testament, he doesn't say a single word. And yet, as we're about to see, and it kind of like many of you introverted, quiet types, uh, his impact goes well beyond words. It's almost like we sang in that carol, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. That's, that's Joseph, that's his story. So here's the back story of Joseph's life and what we're going to look at today. 
It turns out quiet, introverted Joseph has gathered up the courage to pop the question. And he's already been to Jared, and Mary says yes. And so they're doing what engaged couples do, right? They have a script for how their life is going to go together. They're imagining their future and um, getting ready for the wedding and all the dress shopping and looking for the band and the venue. And um, Joseph, who doesn't talk very much, is actually pretty good at doing this as a potential groom. Mary's asking him all these questions like, what do you think about this color palette? What do you think about these flowers? What do you think about these appetizers? And Joseph's like, So it just kind of works out well. And those of you who are engaged or you've been recently married, I mean, just think back to all the anticipation and the joy and the excitement about the hopes of your future life together. And that's what Joseph's living in right now. Here's how Matthew tells the story. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with the Holy, to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know exactly how Joseph finds out, but the wording in that verse is suggestive, was found to be with child. And anybody from a small town knows how this works. Uh, Allie and I have been watching this show recently called Virgin River. It's about small town life. And uh, as we were watching this week, there was a line that struck me, in our town, the Wi-Fi is slow and the gossip is fast. (laughs) And that's pretty much how it works. And so one day that gossip comes to Joseph. And then we can assume that Mary had to go to Joseph and said to him, Joseph, the rumors are true, but I have not been unfaithful. Actually, it's, it's kind of a God thing. And we can also assume that Joseph found this rather difficult to believe. And so he struggles with what to do. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now Matthew uses real intentional language here when he calls Joseph a just man. It means that Joseph was known for his unflinching faithfulness to the scriptures. This was not a phrase that they just threw around really loosely. To be a just man, it meant that Joseph had this sterling reputation in his community. But see, now his wife-to-be is pregnant. And the scriptures that he had lived his life upon were really clear about this. If a woman pledged to be married was unfaithful, they shall be, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. And even though the Roman authorities in that day frowned upon this, historians will tell you that sometimes it happened. And Joseph knows this. He knows, he knows this book inside and out. He has lived his whole life under its authority. And so you see the tension here, because according to God's word, justice meant that Mary is to be publicly disgraced. But Joseph loves her, and he doesn't want her to experience that kind of shame. So what does he do? And just to be clear, calling off the engagement and sending out like an updated save the date, that's not an option because technically they weren't just engaged, they were betrothed. In a sense, it was already official. So Joseph is wrestling with what does it mean to be just? What does it mean to be righteous? Do I keep her as my wife? Do I believe her? Do I, do I make this a large and public scandal or do I keep it kind of quiet 
and avoid a spectacle and try to save her from whatever disgrace I can. And eventually, that's the path that he decides to take. Keep it quiet. Try to avoid the scandal. Now, what's striking about this account, and I'm grateful to a guy named Michael Barber. He's written a book recently about the original Christmas story. At this point in the text, the angel hasn't yet come to Joseph to confirm that what Mary is saying is the truth. God doesn't come to Joseph at the beginning of the process like he did with Zechariah and like he did with Mary. In other words, Joseph doesn't get the benefit of a little bit of lead time here. Instead, he has to go through this agonizing journey of, and the shock of hearing this, this news and the rumors and then Mary saying, the rumors are true and I'm pregnant and then his own not knowing what to do and what to believe and which path he's supposed to take. I mean, why didn't God come to him at the very beginning of the process and just save him from a world of pain? And so you almost get this sense that maybe God was up to something here that God knew this would cause Joseph to grow as he wrestled and made his way through what felt like a completely dark betrayal, season of discernment, just pain after pain, that it might grow Joseph in ways that he would have missed out on if God had just shown up at the very beginning and told him. Does that, does that make a little bit of sense? Now, quick side note, I actually preached this text on my first Christmas here at Highland Park. And um, eight years later, I am seeing something that I didn't see the last time I studied this. And it's, it's kind of around this idea. I wonder if Joseph's response to this news is a bit more complicated, a little bit more gray than I once thought it was. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Verse 19, uh, look at the word. It says, Mary is disgraced. She's disgraced. And in his wrestling, it is, it is a little like what Joseph is struggling with is, will I too be disgraced? And is there some way for me as a just man, sterling reputation to avoid having to take on Mary's disgrace? I mean, Joseph knew it was just a matter of time before her life was ruined. She'd be cut off from her family, shunned in society, disgraced. I mean, nobody's going to believe her story about a Holy Spirit, Right? And see, if Joseph marries her, that disgrace now comes to him. It's now his. And so the only way he can avoid this is to divorce her, which of course sends the message to everybody else that he doesn't believe her story either. That he's just a victim of her unfaithfulness. But if he chooses to marry her and six months later they have a child, well, they can do the arithmetic like we can and, and, and they're going to know that was a couple. Joseph was unfaithful with her and they're both disgraced. So it's almost like Joseph is deciding, I can't absorb that kind of disgrace. I don't want to lose everything to have my life, my reputation, my future ruined because of this. Does that make sense? And so he resolves to divorce her quietly. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. And that's the, that's the little line that we've been tracing through this Advent. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So now the angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, you have not chosen wisely. 
you wanted to protect your reputation as a just and a righteous man, and you were afraid. But in this moment, that is not what is just or what is right or what is love. Do not fear. Joseph, I know it seems like everything has gone off script. You may lose your reputation, something you have worked so hard to build and protect. You've done everything right. You may lose your standing in the community. You may suffer financially, but don't be afraid because God is with you in this. Now, this kind of brings us back to that boring genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. Did you notice, by the way, the, the way the angel refers to Joseph when he calls out to him? Son of David, son of David. It's like a little bit of a, cue, a, a clue. So what do we find when we go back to this genealogy of, of King David earlier in Matthew 1? Because there's a couple landmines in there. Among other things, what we find is a series of women who have been injected into the genealogy, which would have been incredibly rare in the ancient world. Like anyone reading this or listening to this would have just jumped off the page for them. So in the line, the royal line of King David, you've got Rahab, who was a prostitute, Tamar, who posed as a prostitute, Ruth the Moabite, which Moabites were considered a deeply despised, deeply inferior ethnic racial group for the Israelites. And then, of course, you have Bathsheba, who was forced into an adulterous affair with David. These are the women in the lineage of Joseph and Jesus. And maybe, maybe that's God's way of saying, Joseph, this isn't about sterling reputations. It's not about having the purest bloodline, and it definitely ain't about what other people think of you. But you have to understand, Joseph, if you want to receive this child, it means you have to be willing to receive disgrace. If you let this child into your life, you are going to absorb some of the world's disgrace. But that's love. Love is willing to take on the disgrace. Part of this is that Jesus is about to explode what people thought about who was righteous and who was unclean and who was in and who was out and who was really welcome into God's family. Jesus, who drew near to and became a friend of sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers and prodigals, those we once thought were way on the outside, farthest from God, and now they're invited all the way into the heart of God's family. So will Joseph lay down his reputation, his standing in the eyes of others so that something far greater can be born into his life and his family and into our world? Verse 21, the angel continues. She will bear him a son. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. You shall call him Jesus in other words, the angel says, Joseph, you don't get to name him. In the ancient world, naming was a symbol of authority. Tim Keller writes about this. It wasn't just, you know, let's kind of go online and let's find the cutest name, baby name, or grandma names are kind of in right now, or maybe we'll go with the last name, first name. No, naming was a symbol of authority. And you only get to name something that you have authority over. You created it, you get to name it. You start the company, you get to name it. You have a child, you get to name it. Why? Because that child is under your domain. But here the angel announces to Joseph, if you receive this child into your life, Joseph, he won't be under your management. 
you will be under his. You don't get to name him, he's naming you. When you receive this child into your life, you have to give up ownership. You have to stop managing your life. He's now in charge. And just follow with me here for a sec because people in our culture today, they are understandably put off by this. You mean that I have to lay down authority and personal liberty and ownership to receive Jesus into my life. It's, it's like, I, 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 I kind of want Jesus and I want the son of God and the sweet infant, eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus and all the you know, greatness that comes with that. I wanna bring that into my world and his benefits and perks, but I don't wanna have to yield any control to do so. Because I wanna be able to keep some parts of my life and some agency over some areas of my life that frankly, I'm just, I don't wanna give up yet, maybe ever, but maybe at some point when I'm done having a lot of fun and just wanna be in control of most of my life. But the angel comes to Joseph and announces to him and to you and to me, if you wanna receive this child into your life, you have to lay down authority. You don't get to manage your life anymore. You don't get to name Jesus, Jesus names you. So how will Joseph respond? We, we know it's not gonna be with words. He's not a talker. But what's he gonna do? Verse 24. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And I love this verse. It's so Spartan. It's like, there's no detail. There's no flowery language. There's no like, well, he kind of talked it over with some friends. He considered it. He thought about it. He ran it by a mentor. He kind of went back and forth. He journaled some of the pros and cons and did a little bit of a Venn diagram type of thing. He had a really long conversation with Mary. No, he woke up and he did what God commanded him to do. Quiet, costly obedience. At the center of the Christmas story is, the, is a, the quiet, faithful obedience of a father who took on disgrace for his son before his son ever took on disgrace for him. There's this moment later in the Gospels which kind of gives us a window into the price that Joseph paid. In Mark chapter 6, there's some people talking about Jesus and um, here's what they end up saying. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the son of Mary? Now, what's weird about that? I mean, he is, in fact, the son of Mary. That's not inaccurate. But here's the thing. In that ancient, patriarchal, male-dominated culture, no one would ever refer to a man this way. A man was always the son of his father. He would have been known as Jesus, the son of Joseph. Jesus bar Joseph. That's the only way you would ever refer to a man unless you were mocking them, unless you were sticking it to them. Referring to a man as the son of his mother was a cursing insult. There's a, we have a crude phrase in our day that's not appropriate in church. And yet, this little moment in Mark's gospel shows us that even 30 years later, Joseph is still known as that guy from Nazareth who took in an illegitimate child. And it just makes you wonder if one of the reasons that Jesus showed such love for the disgraced is that he knew what it was like to grow up in a disgraced family. So one other little story from Jesus' life, and we'll close with this. It's a familiar story. Uh, later in 
John's gospel, uh, Jesus, he's, he's well into his ministry at this point. There's a lot of controversy. And at one point, um, Jesus is confronted by a crowd who's ready to stone a woman caught in adultery. And they say to Jesus, Rabbi, uh, you know the book. You know the law. Deuteronomy 22. We have to punish her. So what do you say, Jesus? And they're trying to trap him here. And we're told in this moment, and it's, it's the only time that Jesus is ever recorded as writing something. But if you know the story, he kind of kneels down into the dirt. And he starts tracing and writing something. Just this powder keg moment. And for 2,000 years, people have wondered, what in the world did Jesus write down in that dirt? Here's what Ray Vanderlaan suggests. What if in that moment, standing before this woman caught in adultery, Jesus remembers back to a 16-year-old pregnant girl from Nazareth, whom the crowds wanted to punish, and a young man named Joseph who risked everything to stand at her side. What if Jesus knelt down and in that dirt, he traced the name Mary? And just like his dad, Jesus stood up for that woman. In a sense, he was willing to absorb her disgrace onto himself, to take her shame on himself. And one by one, this bloodthirsty mob walks away. Costly obedience. It, it would, this would cost him like father, like son. And I was just thinking, thinking about that story because it is so easy from this vantage point to now look on and to say, yes, that's what I, that I, I thank, way to go, Jesus. That's the right thing. And then I wonder how often I really am the one with a stone in hand. And I've been in church most of my life and I read the Bible and I, I talk about it all the time. But I can get to this place where I am so quick to cast judgment and to condemn. And I'll tell you what's really messed up is that sometimes I can even get a little bit of joy out of somebody else's disgrace. Why does the church seem to churn out so many stone throwers? And the story of Joseph is kind of a wake-up call for people like me who talk for a living. A lot of us know how to talk about our faith. But the question Joseph asks of you and of me is, is what are we going to do with it? Are we going to do anything with it? Does it make a difference? Does it lead to costly obedience? The same obedience we see in his child who one day would take on all of our disgrace. The son of a carpenter who would be laid on a pair of two-by-fours where he would give his life and his glory for us. Mild he lay his glory by. We sang those words. You know what that means, mild? It means he wasn't coerced. He wasn't forced. Freely, joyfully, voluntarily, he laid his glory by because he loves you. So Jesus, we thank you for your love and the love of your adoptive father, Joseph, who was willing to risk so much. And we ask God that as we draw near to you and to Christmas, that you would help us and fill us with that kind of love that puts 
it, put, it puts it into action. Show us, open, an op, open a door, show us an opportunity where we can be responsive in that way. And would you fill us with your love more deeply than ever before? We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.